Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we look at Psalm chapter 46, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, The Chief End. Uh, while you're turning and we're transitioning, let me make mention of a, a, a couple of matters. Um, one is if you're involved in the reading of scripture in the call to worship, um, uh, next week uh, after the service, uh, if you'll plan on sticking around afterwards, we'll have a little meeting. I'll give you the uh, schedule and such. We'll go over instructions and try to keep progressing and doing this with excellence. So if you'll plan on that, please. Um, secondly, um, it appears um, if the Lord wills and all things move forward as we are praying, they will. We have only a short time left um, with the Hickey family. Um, so unless something changes, it is down to just a matter of weeks um, before they head out. So one of the things that we want to do um, as a church family and, and part of our worship, um, we want to do a send off um, for them. So two weeks um, from this weekend, uh, in both the Saturday and Sunday services, we're going to um, have a time, part of our worship, um, to send them off, um, that we will pray over them. Um, I want to preach a message of uh, encouragement and commission uh, to the Hickey family, as well as um, a, a commission to us, their church family, the Sending Church, to send well and support um, in the work of the gospel. So uh, make note of those things coming up. Um, let's turn our attention to the text. Um, we have made it our practice for about the last dozen years that at the start of every new year, we return to the foundations. Uh, even if it's just briefly, um, we take some time to think again on the purpose of all things, getting, getting our core right, our foundations right, as well as uh, oftentimes look at matters of practical application of how do we move forward to glorify God. So uh, at the start of this year, I have a few messages planned, including the charge to the Hikis and the charge to us before we return to Romans 8. And so this morning's message comes in that series there in Psalm 46. So let's turn our attention to the word. I'll read it and then pray over, uh, over our time together. Um, uh, under Psalm 46, uh, your Bible might have some kind of subheading of something like uh, God is the refuge of his people or the Lord is our fortress, something along those lines. That right there um, has been added by humans. Okay, so just a subtitle in there. But what you also find where it says for the choir director, that is part of the original inspired text. It is appropriate to read it when we read through Psalms. So I'll begin there. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, you are the great and glorious God. We who are in Christ, our eyes have been opened. We, we know this. We believe it to be true. We have seen just a fraction of your glory. We know your glory is all around us. Were we able to, with perfection, with sinless eyes, look around, we ought to every day be in absolute wonder over your glory revealed in your works. But Lord, we are ashamed to say that in our sinfulness, we don't see it as we should. And so we ask God, show us your glory. Show us your excellencies. Bring us to know your might, your power, your goodness, your wisdom, your mercy, your wrath, your judgment. Bring us to see who you are and then to respond, to respond as we should. And God, we pray that as we study this passage, Lord, you'll work these things that will be brought farther. Our, our minds will be opened to understand more, to comprehend your glory and that we'll worship in, in, a, in a greater way, a fuller way, as we should be. So Father, help. Please, O oh Lord, we pray, send your spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are able uh, to, to worship, have conviction and encouragement. Lord, accomplish your purposes. I pray for any in the room, O oh God, that is not yet uh, among your people, not yet in uh, the kingdom of God because they've not yet come to salvation by trusting in Christ. Please, God, make this the day that it happens. Draw them to yourself. Uh, Lord, I, I need your help. Please give me grace. Grant me unction in the opening of my mouth, but also set a guard over my lips that I, I, I not go into the many ways I could be wrong and unhelpful in preaching, God. So please bless this time and bless our children as they hear your word, O oh God, that you will save. So please, O oh Lord, accomplish your purposes and give us grace. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote a short work called, and I would encourage you to jot down the title of this, it is excellent, called, a dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world, which is like the most Jonathan Edwards title of anything he ever wrote. Uh, you can find it for free online. Not an easy read will challenge the mind. A dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. L let me tell you a little bit of a summary of it because it's, it's helpful. He uses a number of illustrations to define some terms that he then goes on to explain. So he uses the illustration of a, a man who gets sick and then embarks on a journey in order to acquire medicine. 
the acquiring of medicine is a goal. It's, a, it's an end. So he's using the word end in that sense. So not like the final end, he'll get there. But at first, it's a, it's a goal. It's, it's, it's a task. It's something he strives to acquire. The acquiring of medicine is a subordinate goal, a subordinate end. So that's one of the terms he uses. A subordinate end because it serves a greater purpose. The acquiring of medicine is not the great goal of his life. The acquiring of medicine serves a higher purpose, the relief of the sickness. And so he explains that we will have creatures, intelligent creatures will have subordinate ends that work to acquire an ultimate end. So that's another term that he uses, an ultimate end. Oftentimes we will have numerous subordinate ends that all link together in a sequence in order to reach some great goal. So he uses the illustration of a, of a man who loves the taste of a particular fruit. So he sells a garment in order to buy tools. He takes the tools and he tills the ground. After the ground is tilled, he plants the seed. He tends the garden. Each, each one of these steps is a, a task, a goal. He might wake up one morning and say, by the end of this day, I want to have this ground tilled. So it's an end, but it's a subordinate end that all work together in order to reach an ultimate end. The eating and enjoying of the fruit, which was his goal. Intelligent creatures can have numerous ultimate ends. But whatever a creature's last end is, the, the supreme end, he calls the chief end, which hopefully you are familiar with. This is the language that the writers of the Westminster Catechism used in their very first question, which we're quoting all the time. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We love that phrase. That fuels me. I recently had a t-shirt made with it put on there. I love it. Love this phrase. It is inspiring. That is not our particular consideration for today. And from this passage, what, here's the question that Edwards explores in that work. Does God have a supreme chief end. So man has a chief end. It's communicated in scriptures and it's explained in that first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism. But does God, does God have a supreme goal, a supreme chief desire that he is setting out to accomplish? Does God have a singular chief end? After all of history is fulfilled, will there be something that God has accomplished? Well, to answer that question, we can, well, yes, go to the scriptures. One of the ways to answer that quickly and easily is to go to the Bible. And Edwards has a chapter in his work where he just recounts passage after passage after passage from the Bible where God shows that he does have a supreme end a supreme goal that leads all that he does that he is set out to accomplish the chief end of God will be met after all of history is done there will be some great end that he has accomplished how do we know what it is well 
Tr track with me here. So um, here's some, some of Edward's reasoning. It helps us as we read the Bible. One of the ways to see and comprehend God's chief end is as we read the Bible to ask this question. What is the end result of the world? What is the effect that will be accomplished when, when all is said and done? What is the consequence that will remain? Because God is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and infinitely capable of creating and doing whatever he wants. So if after all is said and done, there is something that remains, then we know that this was the desire, this was the end he began with. So if you're tracking with me, I know it's, it's philosophy, not everybody likes it, okay? But it's helpful. Think of it like this. You and I are not able to do that. You and I are not infinitely wise, powerful, and capable. We oftentimes have goals, some plan that we, that we want to reach. And so we think it through in our minds, how am I going to do this? We set out to work and our plans fail. So what comes at the end is not necessarily what we set out to do. God, however, is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and infinitely capable. When he begins with a goal, it gonna happen. At the end, it will be the consequence that remains. So if we can go to the Bible and see what will be the consequence at the end of the age, at the end of this world in history, we will know that this is the chief end and supreme end of God. So what is the chief end for which God created the world? Again and again, God declares what we see in Psalm 46, that all creatures will see and know his glory and respond appropriately. That all creatures will see his divine excellencies to know who he is, his glory, his might, his power. Yes, even his wrath, his judgment, his love, his mercy. We'll see his divine excellencies, we'll know it, and will respond as they should. Now understand, some creatures reject him like the fallen angels. They will see his divine excellencies, they will in the end be made to see the fullness of his glory and they will respond appropriately in terror in response to the power and might and glory that they see. But some creatures, angels and redeemed sinful men, those bought by the blood of Christ, those who have fled to Christ for salvation, we will see his glory. It starts now. Salvation begins to open our eyes to bits of it and we comprehend, but we will come to see it in its fullness, see his glory, and we will be overwhelmed by love and delight, by worship and awe. Again and again, 
using all kinds of different language, all kinds of illustrations, all kinds of genres in the Bible, from the history to the didactic teaching to the poetry to the apocalyptic language, all through the scriptures, God shows again and again, this is why he made the world. It will be accomplished. And Psalm 46 is one of the places we see this. Psalm 46 is one of the hundreds of places from the Bible we can go to. And I think Psalm 46 has a very beautiful, beautiful way that it shows this. If you look at the uh, chapter here, this psalm, a song that was meant to be sung by worshipers, your Bible probably has it divided into three parts, three units, three paragraphs there. That's generally how it is seen there. Um, I want to walk us through the psalm, see the flow of thought, the message that is there so that our hearts worship, we in, in, in our souls exult in God, in the worship that is here. And, and in the form of the psalm, I, I want to show you three parts to it. At least that's how I have it outlined. There is a premise, a reality, and an end. A premise, a reality, and an end. So let me walk us through this first, a premise. <clears throat> What happens in verses one through three is that a premise is stated. It's stated in two parts. Then there is an application to the premise. And then it is poetically preached. It's preached so that we'll understand it more further. So here's the premise, two parts. First, God is our refuge and strength. Then the second part of the premise He is a very present help in trouble. So let's consider that as we begin. A refuge is a place of safety. You might imagine, and I believe this imagery appears in the Psalms and and maybe even in this one right here. Imagine an enemy were chasing you. Where would you flee? Well, imagine that there were some castle some, some fortress with uh, fortified walls, some stronghold where you could flee behind the walls of this uh, high walled stone castle and your enemy were not able to reach you. When you were inside of this fortress, you were safe. For the people of God, God is our refuge. He is our stronghold. He is our fortress. In fact, this is another way of explaining who the people of God are. Who are the people of God? The people of God are those who flee to him for safety and not to pseudo refuges, not to lies. In fact, the book of Hebrews picks this up um, in in a beautiful way to show us that who are the Christians? Who are those who are not pretenders, not Christians in name only? Who are those who are in Christ? They are those who flee to Christ for our ultimate safety for our salvation. When you consider how will you escape the hell that you deserve, we first of all have to back up a little bit to understand the Bible does say this. You must understand, you must believe what God tells you that you deserve his wrath because you have broken his law. You have sinned against him. You deserve hell and his wrath. If you don't believe that, we can't go anywhere. We can't go any further because you don't believe God. This is where you begin. How are you going to escape the hell that you deserve? Do you flee to trust in your good works? 
Do you flee to trust in your own inner goodness or some religion? Those who are Christ, they flee to him. They flee to Christ. Christ is our refuge. God is our refuge and strength. Not all of the earthly lies that we are tempted to put our hope in. God is our refuge and strength, not human armies, not my money. God is our refuge and strength. All other refuges are lies. They're styrofoam blocks shaped and painted to look like rocks, but they cannot help you. There is only one sufficient place of safety and it is him. And guys, this, this cannot just be pretty words that just sounds nice. When your world is shaken, how do you comfort yourself? Because everybody does in some way. Hopelessness, that place of hopelessness, despair, and when people contemplate or follow through on suicide is where they have reached an end, where they have no hope and it is nothing but despair. When your world is shaken, how do you comfort yourself? Because the world will often comfort themselves with, by, by saying, it's okay because. So in your mind, when your world is shaken, how do you comfort yourself? It's okay because I still have my money. It's okay because I bought a lot of ammo. It's okay because I have a lot of food. And it's not to knock and prohibit means. God uses methods and means. We're called to be wise in this world. But what is your ultimate place of safety? What is your refuge? For the people of God, we are those who say, it's okay because I am in him. Because I have Christ. He is our refuge and strength. He is our refuge and strength. And that means second part. He is a very present help in trouble. God is not shifty. God is not fickle. God is not like us. People will again and again let you down. We all know that. We say that. It, it, even though that is the case, we still struggle in applying it. We still fall to the temptation of placing our hope in people. We, we all know what it is to be betrayed when we need help. We all know what it is to call out to someone for help and they don't come through for you. Or we know what it is maybe to call out for help and, and there is a faithful friend who tries, but they're not infinitely wise, powerful, and capable. And so they're just not able to come through. God is not like that. When you need help, he is infinitely wise, powerful, and capable, and he is willing God promises that for those who are in Christ, when we come to him, because he does give a prescription on what we're supposed to do, ask, seek, knock, come to the throne, he promises help. On other days, probably before we leave Romans 8, we will talk about some of the ways that God gives help because he gives help, but it's not always the solution that we want. You know, sometimes when we pray, what we want is God to like take all that's difficult away. And that's not the help that he gives. Oftentimes the help that he gives is to give a greater strength or you encounter the right chapter of the Bible that gives you what you need for that day to make it through and trust him. He gives help. When you need help, he gives help. But you notice the verse. He's, he doesn't just say that he sends help. What does it say? 
He is present. He is present. In fact, he's not just present. He is very present. He is not just there for you. He is very there for you. You might have a faithful friend who stays by your side through uh, trial and difficulty and they are present, but your God is very present. Your friend, while faithful, is not able to indwell you is not able to supply you with the very strength that you need physically and spiritually in order to keep going. But God is very present. He does not abandon or leave or forsake his people. He stays by our side. He is for us and not against us in Christ. So there's the premise. He's a refuge and strength, a very present help. But then notice that there's an application given to the premise. You notice in the next verse, therefore. So see the connection. Because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. We will not fear. Look over at another Psalm that explains this even more. Psalm 112, please. Psalm 112, I read an article this week that expounded on this, found it very helpful. Psalm 112, if you'll start in verse one there. Look how it begins. It begins, Psalm 112, verse one, praise the Lord. That is the Hebrew word hallelujah, by the way, which we sang in our hymns this morning. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That is this Psalm's premise. How blessed is the one who fears the Lord. What happens after that are benefits that come from fearing the Lord. He begins to expound upon them. Look down at verse six. He will never be shaken. The one who fears the Lord will never be shaken. And then verse seven, he will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not Fear. The rest of the psalm goes on to say more helpful things, but we see the main message there. So see the connection. Fear the Lord and you will not fear man. Fear the Lord and you will not fear the hard and painful things that come to us on the earth. This is not to pretend that uh, if I'm just a good boy, then I'll never get nervous. Okay, that's, that's not what's going on here. This is also not some, if I ever get scared, I guess that means I'm not truly a Christian. No, we will fall to the temptation. We will sin because it is sin to worry, to wring our hands in fretting anxiety. It is a failure to trust the Lord. Okay, we, we do fall to the sin of this. But one of the things we can see is, you know, fearing the Lord is not a yes or no question. It comes in degrees. To the degree that you fear the Lord, you will not fear man. To the degree that we fear the Lord, we will not fear the trials and hardships that come on the earth. For those who fear the Lord, they will not be shaken. We will not fear. Back to Psalm 46. 
Watch what he says in the following verses. We will not fear, but now he expounds upon that. So this is when he poetically preaches to bring these truths home. So Psalm 46, verse two, therefore we will not fear though the earth should change. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. The Psalm is describing absolute catastrophe. This is not a Psalm about when you have a kind of bad day. The Psalm is describing a shaking of the earth where things are no longer the same. The Psalm is describing, I mean, the, the picture that is here, and then you come into some of the, the remaining verses, the bows are broken, the chariots are on fire. The peaks of the mountains have crumbled and they are sliding into the heart of the sea. This is cataclysmic shaking. This is perhaps apocalyptic event where stars fall from the heavens and the earth shakes in a tumultuous ways. Even if this cataclysmic shaking occurs, the people of God will not fear. That's the premise. That's the premise. After the premise, we're shown a reality. Notice the next unit, verse four. There is a river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Boy, do you notice the stark contrast here between the first unit and then these two verses. What we're being shown here is that there is a reality in the heavens even while the earth is in turmoil. The earth will experience catastrophe and you may find yourself, you may find yourself in periods of swirling tumult. And this is language from the Psalms where, where you just kind of feel like every trial that hits you, it's like a wave that's pushing you under and you come up, you get half a breath and the next one pushes you back and the, the seaweed tangles your, your hands, your face. You come up, you're gasping and you're pushed down again. You may experience calamity, but there is a reality that exists in the heavens while it's happening. Heaven is at peace. Heaven is at peace. God is not being thwarted. The waves that are smashing your face, they're not smashing his. In fact, the rest of the Psalm goes on to explain from his throne, he's sovereign over the waves. There is a river. There's a river. Uh, uh, now I'm sure that there are you know, 200 elements of the Bible. The Bible is so deep, you cannot possibly know all of it. I'm sure there are 200 elements of the Bible that I don't see when I read and study, and so I fail to pass them along to you. But one thing that I am repeatedly trying to show you from the scriptures is its beauty, is the poetic way in which not only the Bible is written, but God has ordained history to come about in poetic ways. 
God has worked in history so that this event is a type of something that comes later. And then the Bible, yeah, describes reality, tells us what's happening here. And so over and over as we study the Bible, we're seeing these, these devices come out. Here is another one. There is a river. In the book of Genesis, we're told about the Garden of Eden. God created the world. It was very good. And in a very good world that had no sin, death, disease, in a very good world, there was even a paradise in the very good world. There was a paradise garden. And you remember this, the early chapters of Genesis talk about out of this paradise garden, there was a river that flowed a river that flowed watering the land downstream. It's almost like this picture is being set up that the goodness of this paradise was then flowing to bring its blessing to places beyond, a river watering downstream. Well, here we're told that there is a river. There is a river in the city of God, a river in heaven, which has streams dispersing out, bringing the goodness, the blessing, the joy, the life of God to those who drink from its waters. There is a river which makes the city of God glad. Now, if you recall last week, we saw Jesus stand up at the Feast of Booths and cry out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I believe Jesus meant that to be a connection to this right here. And this poetic truth finds its climax in Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, as John is receiving a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, we are told, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clearest crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb. That's a new revelation in the new covenant. Flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. There is a river, a river in the city of God Going down the middle of the street, here's the rest of what John says, on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Flowing from the throne to all who drink, there is a river of blessing. So what's happening here in this paragraph? We're being shown a brief glimpse of heaven, the city of God. While on earth, Mountains crumble in the city of God. There is gladness. Heaven is not fretting. Heaven is not melting. The earth may be melting. Heaven is not. Heaven is filled with the worship of the Lord. Heaven is filled with exultation. Heaven is made glad by the streams of God. And do, do you see how this is critical? Like this, this matters. It's not just nice. <laughs> Like, I enjoy it. It's not just nice when the Bible gives us glimpses of heaven. Us knowing what is happening in the throne room of God is crucial to us making sense of the earth. Heaven is not determined by what is happening on earth. The universe is affected by what is happening in the throne room of God. What happens in heaven determines the course of the universe. And in the city of God, the goodness of God is making the city glad. The kingdoms of the earth totter. The kingdom of heaven does not. 
By the way, you, you notice that dichotomy in verse six of the same unit. This is intentional. Look at it there. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter while the river of the throne, coming out of the throne of God makes the city glad. The, kingdom, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. Their destiny hangs on the edge of a knife and it is not just that it seems that way. They do. The Bible never promises the kind of help that oftentimes in our flesh we want. The Bible never promises that our nation or our kingdom or our business or our ambition, our endeavors, they'll never fail because we're Christians. That's not what the Bible promises. The nations and kingdoms and endeavors of the earth, they do fall. The kingdom of heaven does not. And when they do, when the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, you notice the rest of that unit there, we're told it is the voice of the Lord which has done it. God is not merely observing what is happening from his throne. He is sovereign over every wave. He is sovereign over every desolation that comes on the earth. And after all of that, notice verse seven. The premise is restated. The premise is restated. The Lord of hosts. Now, Lord, capital L-O-R-D there. This is the divine name, Yahweh. He, the, the Lord, he, the Lord of hosts, the one who rules the host and the armies of heaven. He is with us. Do you see how that correlates with a very present help? The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Do you see how that correlates with he is our refuge and strength? This is the premise restated. It's just using different language to do so. The premise is stated in the first paragraph paragraph, the second paragraph, and we will see it in the last one as well. God is our refuge. God is our strength. He is very present in time of trouble. So we saw a premise, we saw a reality, and now an end. Look at verse eight. Come. This is a welcome, by the way. This is a beckoning. Come. You can almost imagine the angels in heaven calling. Come, behold the works of of the Lord. There is an invitation, a beckoning to come and look, come and see, come and behold, come and admire and let it drive us to worship. Come and behold with worship and all the works of God. We are able to do this even now though not in the fullest way we will one day. We are invited to come and behold. How do we behold? We look at the word of God and we see his works. The word of God teaches us how to look at the world, how to look at sunsets, babies, wars, and famine, and all that is going on and behold the works of the Lord and see his glory in it. Come and behold the works of the Lord. It's the second line there, who has wrought desolations on earth. Who wrought the desolations? It is him. It is the Lord. When the foundations shake and we look up to God, we find that he's the one doing the shaking. It is the Lord. Verse nine, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Now it's very likely that verse nine is referring 
to the last breaking of the bows and the burning of the chariots when God brings an end to man's wars, man's violence, man's sin, and all things are brought to subjection. While we are on earth, those kinds of things, opposing armies that might invade, it seems terrifying. But we take hope that our God is able to break bows and burn chariots. And one day he will in a final way. Verse 10, cease striving, or maybe your version reads, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. If we are told not to fear, then what is our hope? If something looks very scary, and God says, do not be afraid, there has to be some reason that is the basis that we are able to cling to that keeps us from being afraid. So what is it? Let me tell you what it is not. The basis of our hope and courage in the midst of scary things is not that God promises to remove all scary things from our path. That is not the basis. It is not as though hunger, poverty, extreme poverty, even nakedness, war, rape, kidnap, violence. It's not as though those things happen to all the other people, but Christians, that, that'll never happen to a Christian. That is not the case. This happens to the Christian. Awful things from our earthly perspective, awful things happen to Christians. Our promise from God is not that I'm gonna make sure none of these harmful things, none of these painful things ever happen. The basis of our security is the end. It is the supreme end. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, when I say that, some take courage and your hearts just fluttered with delight. And some cock your head to the side and think, I don't see how that's a help to me. Verse 10 says, cease striving or be still and know that I am God. Now, little side point here. This statement half of a verse, half of a verse is oftentimes put on Christian t-shirts and coffee mugs. This is one of those statements that if you rip it out of context, it changes the meaning. Now, there are plenty of places in the Bible, John 3, 16, you can take it out of its context and you can quote it and it still stays true. Now you get a hundred times more when you put it in context, understand? But there are some places of the Bible that if you take it out of context, it seems to say something different. This phrase, be still and know that I am God. If you hadn't read all of Psalm 46 and I just walked up here with a goofy grin and said, be still and know that I am God, it can kind of put your hearts in a place of serenity. Ah, oh, seems so nice. Just sip my coffee with it written on the mug there and I feel peaceful and serene. Isn't it interesting that this context is anything but serene? He is telling us, picture mountains crumbling. 
The earth is slipping into the heart of the sea. Catastrophe, chariots are burning. And in the midst of that, God calls and says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Listen, this is a message of peace and it is a message of rest, but it is a particular kind of peace and it is a particular kind of rest. This is not just sentimental serenity. I'm not knocking serenity. I believe it will exist in heaven, but serenity at the wrong time and in the wrong context is not godly. This is a message of peace. This is meant to comfort and help your hearts, but in a way that doesn't just give easy feelings. It is an emboldening kind of statement. I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. So again, we ask the question, if we're being told not to fear, then what is the hope? What is the basis? It is this. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is the supreme end. This is when all is said and done and history has been accomplished and all, all that God has planned has been consummated. This will be the consequence. The Lord will be exalted in all the earth. This world is moving to an end. It is moving to a purpose. Whatever its purpose is, that will define how we must live and behave while we are here. We must know it and know it deeply. We must remember and remind ourselves what the purpose of this earth is because it informs how we spend our days. What are the ambitions of God? We must adopt them as our own. Do we spend our days in activities which would be very productive if the world had a different purpose? Living life for the pursuit of money, Comfort and ease would be very productive if the earth had a different purpose. But if the purpose is for God to be exalted among the nations, for the name of God to be lifted to the highest place, then those activities or the pursuit of them is a waste of life. This is the supreme end and it must it must be laid as the foundation of our thinking. It must become what drives why we do what we do. How you understand the purpose of this earth will determine what you understand as your purpose for your life, which will determine your days. Here is the chief end, the supreme end. Now I'm gonna rattle off here <clears throat> a number of statements all biblical, some of them direct quotes from the Bible, some of them just summarizing passages. I'm gonna rattle them off. As I rattle them off, they'll do different things in different hearts. For some, as I say these things, this will be uh, hope inspiring, this will be encouraging, this will bring great delight and worship to your hearts. But for others, it may cause disgust or challenge depending on where you are and how you think of these things. God does everything that he does for his own namesake, for his own glory. God does everything that he does. Here is more Edwards language to display his divine excellencies. Although that word excellencies is used in 1 Peter 2. Everything was created with this singular design in mind. You exist for him. 
You do not exist for your own sake. You exist for him. God does not exist to serve you. You exist for him. God has designed all of history for the display of his glory and he is jealous for his glory. God has ordered all of history so that creatures will fall on their faces and worship him and he is jealous that it happens. When someone refuses to worship him, it angers him and angers him even to a point of casting souls into hell. God says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord. There is no other and my glory I will not give to another. God has ordered all of history for the renown of his fame, that his name might be exalted to the highest place. All the world's a stage and the production is called God is glorious. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. We are beckoned to come and behold and worship. With what I just said there, does your heart delight? Or do you find yourself saying, I don't like that very much? When we say those kinds of things, what is the response of the world? What is the response of those who do not believe the scriptures? You'll notice that this is when all of the objections start to come out in pretended sophistication and all of the philosophical arguments. Well, that can't actually be what the Bible means because, 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 well, that would make God selfish. What right does he have? This is when people start to find the Bible repugnant. And maybe you did in the past. Maybe even this morning you find this disgusting or maybe even challenging to you. But let me, let me tell you why mankind has trouble with this. Let me tell you why, you know, so when we begin as a Christian, we don't have everything figured out. There are things of the Bible that begin difficult, but we believe them and submit to them. And then later we come and be like, yes, this is awesome. We delight in these truths. But let me tell you why, when you first heard them, if it, if it challenged you or even evokes some sort of opposite kind of reaction, why it does. It does this because of our sinful selfishness and pride in our hearts. Let me, let me prove that to you. What if God had arranged history and the end of the world differently? What if God had said in the Bible, he spoke to you and he said, I do everything that I do so that you will be exalted to the highest place. What if that were the message of the Bible? What if it were, I have worked all of history. I do all that I do so that you will rule the heavens and the earth. You will be exalted. You will be praised. Would anybody have trouble with that? No. All of the objections that people raise, it would all fade by the wayside if I were the one getting all of the spotlight and ruling. It would all fade, but he's not. He's talking about himself. And because... He's talking about someone other than man. Man rebels. Mankind rebels against this truth about God because deep down, man wants to be God himself. Deep down, man wants the spotlight, wants the glory, does not want to be subservient to anyone else. Deep down, man wants to be Lord. But man is not worthy. Only God is. 
Christian, we must bring our hearts into submission to this truth. We must bring our hearts into submission. It begins, it begins with believing it. The Bible presents something, you know, we've said before, and I'll say again, in the law of God, you'll find some things that first time you read it, you're thinking, that's not how I would have said it. That's not how I would have done it. But we begin with the belief it's true. And I'm not going to try to be dishonest and change what the Bible says. And then secondly, it must be good. It must be right. But as you grow as a Christian, the more you learn and the more you see of God's glory, the more rightness of it all you begin to see. The more we begin to see that if I were exalted to the highest place, that would be God committing idolatry. God has to hold himself as the highest of worth because he's the only one worthy. Anyone else who would be lifted higher than God That would be God committing idolatry. He is the only one who is worthy of these things. And we come to see his beauty and delight that he exalts his name. Those who love the Lord and delight in these truths, when God says, I will not give my glory to another, we say, yes, God, do it. Exalt your name. Make your name to be praised to the ends of the earth. This is God's supreme end. We must submit to it. We must lay it as our foundation of thinking and we must delight in it. All things are from him. All things continue their existence and are sustained by him and it is all for him, for the display of his glory. Submission to his will means that we must make the reason why we do all that we do match God's reason for why he does all that he does. God's supreme end is his glory. Our supreme end, the design is that it is for his glory. We must make our wills in submission to that. But there's another very joyful point in all of this that the Psalms make and the New Testament expounds on even further. The last verse ends with the premise repeated again. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The God who is working all things for the exaltation of his glory, he is our God. He is our help. There is very happy news for us in this. When God works for the glory of his name, we get all the benefit. When God works for the glory and exaltation of his name, we get to be on the receiving end of all of his grace and we get to be brought to the highest place of joy and fullness for all of eternity. Because he is displaying his excellencies so that those who are in Christ will be overwhelmed by his love and worship him, He is showing us a love and grace and mercy that leaves us stricken. God has chosen to wow us. Wow us, not by pretending he's something he's not, but simply by showing us who he is. He is going to wow us. He's going to wow us by us seeing his power by us seeing his judgment and his wrath. The Bible says that the redeemed will look on as God executes his wrath and we will worship him 
for what he does because we will see the rightness and the glory even of his justice and his wrath. But he wants us to be overwhelmed in the highest of ways to wow us by his grace, by his love, by his mercy. He wants us to be undone with delight that he has been so kind to us. And when we are, when we are just overwhelmed and we have that combination of gratitude, joy, worship, delight, and we are stricken by his beauty and amazed that he has been so kind to us, understand the supreme end of God has been accomplished because we see him as beautiful. We see him as glorious. If you can understand that, Ephesians 1 explains, you understand the, the storyline and the purpose of the entire cosmos. Why has God ordered history as he has? Because of the vessels of mercy, which he chose beforehand to overflow and lavish grace on us so that we would be amazed. And when we are amazed at the grace of God, he is glorified and we respond in worship. That's why the New Testament says we were created and we were saved to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is why 1 Peter 2, 9 says that you were saved, you were made the people of God so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We exist to come and behold the works of the Lord. And when we behold, to respond appropriately, to respond in worship. And part of that praise is to then go make him known to the ends on the earth. You must know that on your own, you are on the receiving end of his wrath, not because he is cruel, he is righteous and good, but because you have sinned. You have broken his law. You and I deserve it. You are on the receiving end of his wrath on your own. But the purpose of the gospel and why Christ came was to make a way so that you can come and be on the receiving end of his grace. Turn to Christ and be saved and you will be on the receiving end of his love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for your amazing, amazing grace. Help us to come and behold your works. Help us to see and know your glory. Help us to submit to your supreme end and make it as the ambition of our lives. Help us, O oh Lord, to reorient our thinking and our motives to be in line with your desires. Bless us as we leave and we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.